0: And now we're going to have the wrap-up panel with our journalists who will be able to respond and give us insights about what they've heard. Um, and then we'll open it up for other insights and comments from the, from, the, uh, from the gallery, if you will. So eager to hear also, what do we hear today? What, do we, uh, what themes have emerged for us? What steps might we take to move forward? and looking forward to hearing of this rich conversation. So um, so our, I'm just making a, uh, an executive decision here. We're going to hear first from our from our journalists. So let's just have Michelle, Jack, and Amy. And then Steve, if you want to give some comments, and I'll give some brief comments, and then we'll open it up. Sean, I'm just going to give you a heads up. I'm going to invite you also to... Uh, jump in here after we you hear from us and we'll pass the mic to you to see what your you know bookending thoughts are but thanks for thanks thanks all of you for, for remaining for these rich conversations
1: hello 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 this
0: poor this poor guy up here has got he's got got to be he's got to be an octopus he's <laughs> like got work? the camera
1: over here and then he's got the mic over here so um. So, we're just, uh, I'm Michelle Borstein, I'm a religion reporter from the Washington Post. We're just going to talk a little bit about some observations that from the, from the uh, couple days and some thoughts about journalism's role. So, I'm just going to tell you some of the, some of the things that, that I observed from writing about religion. One is that most of the speakers really didn't touch on religion that much, or re- religious literacy, or the religious dynamics of their topic. There were definitely exceptions, but um, a lot of people you know, didn't talk about how religion plays a role in their own work or in the crises that they described. So one of the things I was thinking about was, why? Why was that? Um, so we can explore that a little bit. The second was, um, well, a, a couple thoughts on that. One is whether there's anxiety around, for Americans, around talking about religion, whether a lot of the issues are church-state issues for people working in government. Um, and ambivalence about the topic, feeling that there isn't such a thing as religious literacy, those kind of things. Um, Sean said last night that a lot of government officials consider religious literacy a luxury. I was wondering if that uh, that's another kind of why for me for these couple days, whether they people think that it kind of can't be done, whether it's not really possible that we could agree upon it. Um, uh, A lot of people talked about the the fact that spiritual figures and religious leaders don't address the topic. Um, The mayor of Somerville talked a little bit about this. And I didn't know if, you know, one of the things that that we cover a lot in our work is sort of the, I don't want to say just decline, but like shifting sort of role of religious institutions and figures and communities and sort of this question of... um, the status of who of religious leaders and who speaks for, for religious communities and that kind of thing. Um, a bunch of people here talked a little about the theologies of different perspectives on, on immigration and refugees. Uh, Kristen talked about you know the um, God and country and anti-chaos and law and order and militarism and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I was trying to think a little bit about um, the theologies that are brought to this topic. Um, another quick thing was, um, influence of religious actors, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, well, another thing is about the the role of government and even though obviously people talked about the hostility towards government I feel like in the the uh, years that I've been covering 12 years I've been writing about religion and living in Washington that in a way we've almost kind of made religion more of a like a type of a god maybe an anti-god but I mean just the the emphasis on religion the 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 power I mean of religion excuse me of government um, whether it's we see it as a Partner, or big brother, or expression of our values, or our tormentor, or oppressor, but there's just this this enormous weight and pressure on government, expectations of government. Um, so, and I feel like that is, you know, our culture. We have 23 different shows about about Washington, and The West Wing, and all these. I mean, it's just the the, the the prominence of of government and our expectations of it, including by people who are skeptical of it, also are guilty of elevating it. Um, so then I'll just quickly say a few things about, about journalism uh, and then we can pass it to the other folks. Um, one is, I, I just wanted to say very briefly for people that don't know sort of what I see as, and I think is a common perspective of of our, our role, which is to explain and report and hold accountable and that kind of thing, but not to Uh, advocate and not to uh, moralize and that sort of thing. None of those things can't be reflected, and obviously I'm a human being with my own uh, perspectives, but that's not the core mission of journalism in uh, my view and a lot of other journalists' view. Um, Another thing is just this thinking about, I don't mean to sound defensive, but the media. So if you say, to me, if you say the media... You're kind of you're really part of the problem. I mean, you really need to be more specific because there's so many of us that do this. It's very different. I mean, it's just there isn't a media. So I would just encourage you to catch yourself if you say that because you're you're not helping. Um, and also, so think about what what get what gets covered and doesn't get covered. You know, I think somebody was talking about if it's an event is small or who shows up, and I mean all these decisions about coverage. Some people say if it's a small event, don't cover it at all, or you know, cover it no matter what if it's a tiny event. If it's extremists or don't cover the White House if they're going to lie or don't cover. You know, this just this question about what gets covered and how and how we how we think about that and the debates that we have about that. Um, and I'm thinking about the thing of stature of religious. Uh, uh, players, we have that same same question. So I mean, if you look at I guess in Shelbyville you, in the movie they showed this local reporter. Um, I don't know how many journalists have that kind of influence. I mean at this point I mean sort of our declining influence in a, in a sense I'm not saying the media have the media I just I don't say the media. I mean that journalism doesn't that doesn't have a, have a power, but the, there's so many voices that have power. So um, I guess I, I, in terms of thinking about what is our you know, if people say sort of our ratings are in the toilet. It's sort of like how do we th- how do we think about how much blame we're putting on certain articles and who reads them? Forget that. Who who's reading them? How are they reading them? What else are they reading? How are they consuming us? Um, and the desire of uh, of us, of us to understand what I said before to understand all sides that can be very tricky as well because people increasingly want to see us. Um, be more crusaders and I think that's a tough line for us in, in all this
2: um, I'm Jack and I'm um, a reporter with Think Progress publication out of D.C. Right. Don't worry, man. I used I used to run that exact same it's thing. <coughs> when, I was, when I was a student at HDS, I was the AB guy who had to stand in the back <laughs> with the camera. So I know all about it. I'm so sorry. Um, so uh, the cool, the bizarre thing, and cool thing about this panel is that we're basically just telling you what our notes were while y'all were all talking. And so it's kind of like us pitching our editors, and you are our editors, and like whether or not we're going to write the stories, whether or not you like what we say. So. So I mean so this is just kind of reflections on things that I heard. And for me, like you know, in the first panel um, when we were hearing from John Casey, I mean one of the things that really struck me about what he said is how when he structured um, his department at the State Department, he really wanted not just you know, area academics, but someone who had specific knowledge um, of a granular topic in a specific place. And if he didn't have it, he had to figure out someone to learn about it. And a running theme I've seen throughout all of these panels is that you kind of need that person to help parse out the religion element in every panel that we've had. That, that context and specific um, expertise is really important. Um, so, for instance, like, you know, in the, in the government panel, the mayor of Somerville talking about sanctuary cities and talking about you know, his own struggle um, here in this city and obviously, there's a there's a bigger meta narrative there of you know reacting to Donald Trump. But then you're also seeing these local religious actors and how they're working as advocates, um, you know, for immigrants and also you know standing up for refugees. And how all of this, like the way you write a religion story in that panel, is that you would probably talk to several of the people who are on the panel and try to pull together a consistent narrative of how religion plays a role. And it's not as easy as religion matters because of X. It's that religion matters because of the advocates. It matters because of the faith of the mayor. It matters because of how they're reacting to the articulated faith of Donald Trump. And I saw the same thing when we had you know, the, um, the panel where we were talking about what it's like on the border. You know, We're talking about the individual faith of a border patrol officer. And we're also talking about the faith of those who are coming across the border. And we're also talking about the faith about evangelicals and how they react to it because they're shifting our major public policy. And it was, and then even in, we're talking about Shelbyville, like you can't tell that story without talking about Charlottesville. You can't tell that story without saying that there's both faith on the protesters side and faith on um, the, the part of the white nationalist side, or at least a claim to faith. And so I thought it was really interesting to see how difficult it is to write a religion story based on the complexities of these very specific um, moments in time but how you cannot tell the story accurately without talking about faith. And so you know, in terms of my reflections on journalism after hearing from all y'all, I mean, the, I think what I took away from this was that one, to tell a story accurately. You need to become an expert in that granular knowledge. You need to be that go-to person when you head to Charlottesville, when you head to Shelbyville. Um, you know, I, one of the things I've noticed as a journalist this year covering religion is it is impossible to tell the stories this year without knowing the religion is there. I mean, if you went to the airports after the Muslim ban came down, the people at the front of that line were holding scripture in their signs, who were, who were welcoming people um, who made it through customs. And when you went to Charlottesville, there was a line of clergy and some people from HDS who were down there staring down white supremacists. And so you know, knowing that that story is there, but knowing that you have to look at it I mean, look for it, it's really important. And one thing I also thought was really helpful in these panels and that journalists need to um, recall is that history is really important. The amount of times um, that we've heard in these panels how you have to reference something 30, 40, 100 years ago to understand what's happening right in front of our eyes or the fact that it's just always been this way, that there's, you know, that's um, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it definitely rhymes. Like that became a running theme throughout these panels as well. And I think that's a difficult thing for journalists because we always want to tell you something new. We always want to tell you what this is, this is unprecedented, it has never occurred before. (laughs) Um, But the truth is, is that there's often nothing new under the sun and um, every story is new and every story is old at the same time. So I think the most frustrating thing about watching you all talk is remembering how complicated it is and understanding it is always going to be hard. And the role of a journalist is to figure it out for you anyway and know that you're probably going to yell at us for not getting it all right <laughs> once we hit publish. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that. And I, 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 the final point is that um, I also really appreciated about these panels how contextual they were and how a lot of folks were working off of a case example because it's really easy in DC as journalists to get wrapped up in a narrative where there, are, there is Trump and then there are things of people reacting to Trump and, uh, and then only the top level component of that. Like Those are the only conversations that matter. But what came across really clearly in these, converse, um, in, in these panels was a lot of the most interesting stories are happening at the ground level and in some ways, they kind of have to, because if the federal government isn't moving at a certain level, or if Donald Trump, you know, imposes a policy and then massive resistance movements keep it from actually happening, there's still things happening at the local, city, and state level that are changing, that are doing new things. And a lot of times, as y'all made clear, religious people are key, playing key roles in that, um, in those shifts. So paying attention to things, you know, beneath the meta. Trump story I think will be really important moving forward and for religion journalists as well
3: um, oops. like Jack I am another uh, HDS alum. thank you um, did not run the AV equipment but um, <laughs> I, uh, I started here about 20 years ago um, and it's really such a pleasure to be back and I can't thank Diane um, and your colleagues um, more uh, enough for this just overall project that you're working on because I know um, there are many of us who were so dying for this kind of conversation while we were here. Um, Some sort of both acknowledgement that so many of us were at HDS to combine a study of religion with another career field, um, but also some guidance of how we might do that instead of figuring it out on our own. Um, So for those of you who are here now, you are very, very lucky, (laughs) you have no idea. Um, I feel like uh, Jack and Michelle and I are um, probably living out the um, pet peeve of uh, Michelle's of the fact that you can't describe media as one thing um, because we have three very different takes (laughs) on um, what we've seen in the different panels here. And we also should acknowledge, um, we're three religion reporters. So we're always looking for religion in stories and always looking for that aspect of it. Um, I've also spent a lot of my career as an editor. And so part of my job has been to teach my writers who are by and large, not religion people or um, thinking about religion in stories to not overlook that part of something that they may see as initially having nothing to do with religion. Um, it's also part of my personal role. My husband is a journalist, and um, I still count maybe as one of my um, most proudest accomplishments the fact that at least when he's assigned a story in politics or economics that touches on evangelicals somewhere, he will make sure to qualify whether he's talking about white conservative evangelicals. <laughs> 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 it's only taken. Almost 15 years now. (laughs) To convince him of that.
0: Um,
3: But when I was listening um, to the different panels, what jumped out at me is that when we talk about religious literacy, uh, we mean a whole bunch of different things by religion. Um, One of them is definitely just um, simply knowledge about different religious traditions and different religious people. Um, But it's not usually in the form of, you know, could you uh, pass a pop quiz on what the difference between Shia and Sunni Muslims are? Um, it, it obviously goes to what um, Sean was talking about yesterday in terms of who do you connect with to tell you about something. Um, you know, we spent uh, some good years here at HDS learning as much as we could, but... Um, But even I know that just my intro to Islam class is not going to be sufficient um, for me to write most of my pieces. I need to know who to go to to school me on that. Uh, But that's just one piece of it. I actually heard religion all over the panels because even if it wasn't people speaking about faith specifically, they were talking about faith actors often. Mm -hmm. Um, They were talking about faith-based groups, um, and uh, you know nonprofits that may be secular, but had people in them whose motivation was their faith for getting involved. Um, certainly um, some of the the work that we heard about on the border um, is driven by church leaders is driven by different faith groups um, and it's hard to understand the work without understanding who the people are doing that work. Um, I think it, can be similar in terms of teasing out concepts that are in some of the topics that we've been talking about that are um, religious or that turn out to be religious. Um, just to take one example that um, may seem obvious, but I don't think it is actually for most of our readers sanctuary cities. I mean, when I hear sanctuary, I think of a church sanctuary, but I think it has just been a phrase. Um, for a lot of people meaning protection Um, and it it does in this case mean protection but um, what interests me so often about these stories is that we're talking about before sanctuary cities actual sanctuaries and congregations that provide protection Um, and in these cases the past few years it's been to folks who are undocumented and they need a place to be Um, One of the stories that I've actually been trying to um, every so often dip into a little bit more um, because I'm so interested in what it says about different conceptions of uh, religious priorities and and even who counts as religious and whose religious freedom matters is um, what would happen in a hypothetical if... um, uh, I don't even know who it would be. It would be Homeland Security, I guess, Uh, ICE, would decide um, to uh, cross the threshold and go ahead and not just um, pick up folks who are going into services, which we have seen happen over the last year, Mm -hmm. um, but actually go in and try to apprehend somebody who was under sanctuary in a church. And so you know, I've made calls to the folks at the Beckett Fund who are always out there... um, uh, pushing some of these religious liberty cases that usually have more to do with conservative Christians to say, is that an instance that you guys would see on your radar as something that you needed to just stand out there and um, and yell about and put under the umbrella of religious liberty and what you're willing to fight over? Um, and so far there has been no comment. Mm. But um, that's an example of a story that I see as having religious... Yeah conflicts all over it Um, but it's not going to be necessarily the first or even the tenth way that you see it covered Um, so there are I think challenges um, for all of you in terms of recognizing um, the role that religion can play um, the role it can play when it's just very simply um, the matter of who the refugees are say that um, you are helping and what their traditions are Um, whether it's important to know the Hmong people and what is going to even um, be defined as religion for them, Uh, or whether it is a motivating factor, whether people are fleeing persecution, and it may not seem like persecution to you because you don't necessarily understand their traditions and understand why they're seen as threatening to people from other religious traditions. Um, But I think some of it is going to be also, um, communicating to folks like us and to our colleagues what the story is and why why it should be something that we're focusing on. Um, and that's where um, you know, we've got our job to do, um, but we also need some help helping our colleagues do their jobs and convincing our editors <laughs> that these are things that are important, that it's not just um, something we hear so often, maybe not Jack because he's got better editors, but um, <laughs> that, uh, that we're not just dealing with fringe um, yeah. groups and fringe folks. Often that fringe is actually an extremely large <laughs> community that just isn't on the radar of our editors' lives or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. screens. Um, and, uh, so that can be one of the persistent challenges, um, that we run up against. I want to, um, just wrap up my part here by, um, uh, touching on something that I think Jack brought up, uh, which is the, the idea of religion being a luxury, um, that Sean had mentioned yesterday It did make me wonder, um, given all the cuts that have already gone on at the State Department, given the future cuts we anticipate um, what once they're in four or eight years is another administration in charge, what the chances are that religion will be seen once again as integral, or if it really still is just this luxury frill um, that you can afford to um, maybe spend a little bit on as a pilot project in boom times, um, but still is not seen as wrapped up in the heart of so many um, foreign policy issues, so many domestic policy issues. Um, I would say if it's seen that way in the State Department, um, it's also seen that way depending on which parties in power um, in HHS, in HUD, Mm -hmm. in uh, so many of the government agencies that um, really should have experts um, pervasive throughout uh, their work, but um, who tend to just look on it as a little, oh, yeah, I hadn't really noticed that until you pointed it out. Isn't that a a neat like trivia item, Um, not something that is actually a a key part of what they do? Um, So... Uh, All that to say that I think we're on a team not luxury (laughs) essential item, um, but that it's an ongoing struggle in uh, our field and perhaps in your fields, too, um, to get others to see that.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I I really enjoyed uh, yesterday and today um, with the interactions, um, informal interactions and on the panels. I tend to think of religion and politics and religious literacy and government at the national and even international level and not at the local level, and so it was really great that you all you know, put together this event in a way that focused so in a, a much more finely granular um, way. It was a wonderful mix for me of people who work in government, people who work in faith-based organizations, people um, who work in... Um, uh, secular nonprofits, academics like myself, and and um, members of the media, or journalists, whatever you want to be called. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, the, I had three things I heard, and then two questions I have. So I'll just go through them. The three things I heard. Um, one was that uh, what Sean said um, first night, last night. Uh, where you said, I, kn- I knew what I didn't know. And when I talk about religious literacy, I talk usually about uh, four things, um, some kind of knowledge about the world's religion, some kind of comparative perspective, uh, empathetic understanding, critical engagement. I talk about those four things. But usually when I when I talk more at length about it, I talk about this, this idea of a kind of humility, a kind of epistemic humility, as we might say in, in academia. Um, and just being aware when you don't know something that there's something to know, (laughs) right? I mean, I think in some ways that's the best thing that religious literacy delivers. It isn't that in the given moment, you will know that you will have the Rubik's Cube, you know, combination. It's that there is some puzzle to solve here. And in order to solve it, you need to know something and you don't know that thing. That seems to me almost the essence of it. And so uh, that was one thing I heard that I thought was really important. Um, Scott Harshbarger made this uh, reference this afternoon about fake news working um, because people don't understand basic uh, civics. And it made me think uh, of an argument um, that I've heard and used, that fake news works because people don't understand religion, that one feature of our religious illiteracy and one virtue of religious illiteracy is that when we have a country that's so deeply religious and we have a population that knows so little about it and we have voters and elections, it is just an invitation to politicians to just talk smack about religion that isn't, isn't the case. And um, when we don't have enough reporters and we don't have enough voters who are willing to call that silliness and misinformation out, then it just encourages more and more. Of this um, this stuff in the public space, so um, so fake news works because people uh, don't understand uh, religion, and we we can chase some of that um, out if we if we understood a little more. A um, third thing I heard, and it may be the most um, important I heard for me, is this this challenge from yesterday about uh, getting involved in storytelling. You know, academics are very enamored of arguments. When I advise a dissertation, you know, I want to say to my student, you know, what's the argument? You know, where's the evidence for your argument? When I write an op-ed, I have an argument. Um, but arguments, uh, don't work very well in ages when people aren't willing to be persuaded by arguments. And also when we have this sort of truthiness reality that when you marshal facts for your arguments, those aren't necessarily going to be um, going to be credited as facts. And so in that space, and maybe that space is as old as the first humans who told the first story, you know, stories really matter. And, um, and I think this is something that in, in the realm of activism, in the realm of academia, we can do a lot better job. And we can ask questions like, um, what role might religion play? Play in this story that we are observing, and then what role might religion play in the st- in a story that we w- want to tell? Um, one of the political stories of, of my adult lifetime is the absolute uh, victory of the right over the left in the culture war space, because of better messaging and because of more resources toward that toward that kind of messaging, um, and so. So this idea of thinking about what stories we have to tell in our own work and then what role religion might play in them I think is a challenge that I'm taking out of this, uh, about, out of this conference. The two questions I have, um, uh, one is I, I really wanna know more and here I'm on team Michelle, um, uh, I wanna know more about how religion comes up in the day-to-day lives of the people we heard from on the panels. Um, we did hear about religious actors um, and that's true, and that, that was almost always, well, okay, I'm working with these folks and they're in church groups or in their in faith-based groups and they come across my screen at different times during the day. But I didn't get as much of a sense of um, how religion plays a role and how religious literacy might fit into that and how religious illiteracy might frustrate those roles that people are playing. So that's one thing that I would really like to know. Um, how does religion come up in the day-to-day? I'm thinking of very specific things. For example, my colleague Linda Bur- um, Barnes at Boston University, she writes about religion and health and she's very keen on uh, religious literacy and health. And she she talks about edu- and she, she's a religious studies PhD who works in the, in the uh, Boston University uh, Medical School. And um, she is keen on training doctors and nurses to uh, say, oh, it's Ramadan. Um, oh, are you Muslim? Oh, do you take your pills during the day? Because maybe the answers to that would be you know, yes, yes, no. Um, in which case, that's really important information for a doctor or a nurse to know. Um, in fact, it could be life and death information for a doctor or nurse to know. So I'm curious about that. How, how did, what's the equivalent of that in people's work? And then the second thing I want to know, again, goes back to, um, to Sean Casey's uh, talk, uh, I, want, I want to know more about what academics like, like myself can do to bolster religious literacy in this government um, space. Um, I appreciate the argument, uh, the observation that so much of this is local, but um, I would like to ask that question that Sean says he was asking, and, and I know he was asking um, with his group of 35 some odd people he was working with, You know, how can we help you um, achieve your goals so I would be curious to know uh, more of that from you all. how can academics uh, like Diane and myself um, do more to uh, to achieve the goals of the work that you're interested in doing?
0: Great. So
4: thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed enjoyed this thank yeah
0: Thank you. Um, I'm gonna say just a few things because uh, I first of all thank all of you and you you kind of helped me check off many of my, my comments so I won't repeat. And then Sean, I, we will hand you the mic uh, and let you speak from up there. So I, I want to pick up on the theme that has, that um, that both Melissa and Erica raised, which is this challenge to the the public-private partnerships. I think that's a really critical uh, theme that I want that I I share uh, for two reasons. I share I share well. The primary reason I sh- I want to raise it is it's related to. Um, to what Erica was talking about, which is this way that we are—is our charity undermining our justice? And I think the issue of the accountability of governments and government agencies to um, live up to what I believe is a fundamental function of governments, which is to, which is to become and provide a, a fundamental safety net uh, to make sure that that the most vulnerable among us, whether those are temporary vulnerabilities or systemic ones that we should be working to overcome, that that's, that's an important civic role for our, for our governments. And, and the, the neoliberal framework is intentionally designed to undermine that, that role. And so without going into the techni- technical dimensions of that, there's a, that's part of the, of the money that has gone into the messaging that has created this suspicion about governments. And religious communities, then, are playing in playing into this, in a way. So, so for me, though, I also want to say, uh, there's plenty to do. So it's not like religious communities should stop doing the kind of work that they do and have always done. But I would love to see, in this uh, landscape, I would love to see religious communities spend a lot of effort, uh, rather than picking up the pieces of the, the minimized and dismantling of government structures to only pick up those pieces, because someone's got to. We've, we, there are real people that end up falling through the cracks in these times. So I'm grateful for the, for the work that, that, that NGOs and religious communities do. But I think we also need to keep a very clear pressure on the public conversation to make sure that we reverse this narrative of the, of the government conversation and the, the legitimacy of the minimizing of government services. That has to happen. We have to do that. And I think religious communities can play a larger role in a kind of moral discourse and public civic discourse to say, this is not appropriate, while also still doing some of the work to pick up the, the pieces. So that's that's one side that I want to say. I think the only other thing I want to talk about is this: that we have heard a lot of different, um, re, appropriately different representations of literacy, religious literacy, what we mean. A lot of it has used the the uh, appropriately again notions that when we think about religion, we think of either faith actors or we think of uh, people who are inspired by faith, uh, or we think of secular agencies trying to figure out what. Is relevant about faith. I just want to invite us to think, maybe slightly more broadly, that that f- feeds into the humility piece that Sean and, and um, that that Sean that Sean you mentioned last night, and that also you were you were raising, um, and that Steve just mentioned, which is, if we think about if we think about the for me the a fundamental piece of religious literacy is understanding the power of religion, and. in in people's lives for sure, but in the way that, that it shapes cultures. So if we're looking at the kind of fundamental prongs of religious literacy would be religions are internally diverse. So we heard that from Kristen earlier, the importance of helping people realize that a given expression or expression of religion that might be in the ascendancy in public discourse is not the only interpretation of that tradition. There are always contested voices in, in, in these traditions. There are contested voices when we like what we hear. There are going to be contested voices that are challenging that. And there are contested voices when we don't like what we hear. They are out there, but we don't really know about them within, even, for example, within evangelical communities. right? So it's not like there's a broad stroke of evangelical communities who are now a, a block of you know an impenetrable block. So that's important. The the religions evolve and change is also about the historical understanding of the ways that, what are the conditions that shape the ascendancy of certain assumptions about anything but religion in this context. So what's given rise to the uh, conservative religious, primarily conservative Christian voices since 1970 and onward? There's a whole confluence of factors that are political, economic, uh, very much a coalition of, of people who have very multiple uh, and overlapping interests. So I'm hearing that. This is what I'm hearing in, in, in Melissa and in Erica's comments. I'm kind of building off of your foundations. And then the third, the notion that religions are embedded. This issue of, you know, the, the question of immigration is ultimately a question of who's an American. Who gets to be, who's an American? Who do we think is an American? And that those, those issues, those questions are going to be forever contested. But most of us would, would say, well, Americans are citizens. But I think the actual functioning discourse of who's an American is that, is, that, that a certain understanding of Christian America is, is in the ascendancy right now. And that's what is driving so many of the policies and actions and assumptions that we see playing out. And so knowing that, to know that we have an ascendancy of conservative Christianity that has always been there but is now, was dormant for a while and is now very prominent, that is really the defining, is defining so many things in subtle ways. That's the literacy about religion. So it's not that we know the answers, but we know the questions. The questions, it's, and Steve, you said it really beautifully, to know what to ask, to know what we don't know, is what Sean said last night. To just know that what we think is going on, there's something else there, and then to figure out in any given context, which no one, will, you only will know in the local context, which is why I so appreciate the incredible depth of our presentations today. You all who are in your places, you know your space. You know your context. And so, uh, and that's the that that's the kind of uh, uh, expertise we need because everything is local in these questions. Uh, so it's more a question not of saying we can give answers, but we can help maybe frame questions. And that's that seems to be an important role that I see for the for those of us who are scholars of religion to be able to think how do we communicate that set of questions better. So thank you. Those are my those are my comments and. Um, Again, so grateful for everyone's... This was a really incredibly... This is, was well beyond my hopes or expectations. Um, so, Sean, uh, we're going to probably give you the, the last word here, so appropriately, bookending book us.
5: Well, first of all, Diane, thank you so much for all you've done. I mean, to be in this room for a day and a half with so many religion nerds just does <laughs> wonders for my soul. So it's been, been very, very therapeutic, and, and I think... So many uh, questions have been raised and so many topics. Uh, this has been very rich and fruitful for me. So again, thank you for all you're doing. And, and I hope that this has been a, uh, a fruitful exchange for, for everybody uh, that's been here. Let me just kind of run down the panel and, and react selectively to some of the things you've said. Uh, so, so Michelle, you know, your first question about why is religious literacy considered a luxury by people in government? It's not unlike people in your business. Uh, you know, when there are cutbacks in print journalism, they don't go to the political desk first, right? They, they, there are a lot of brothers and sisters in your profession who were given pink slips in, in the recession because, well, you know, religion, that's marginal, so, and we, that's a luxury we can't afford. I think in government halls, it's it's so complex that people get brain freeze immediately and say, oh my god, to really do this is going to take so many bodies. And we may never be good at it. Frankly, that's my conclusion about the Pentagon in religion. They will never be good at it. They should get out of the business. Now, that wasn't a very sexy message when I went over across the river to the Pentagon. You guys you guys just walk away because you're going you're to cause more problems than you're going to solve. Uh, so I think people in an era of declining resources, whether it's in, in print media or whether it's in uh, foreign policy, just think, oh my goodness, our budgets are hemorrhaging. Congress is cutting. And so to go up there and, a- and ask for another you know, $20 million to do this in religion just is a really, really tough sell in your business and in my former business. Um, uh, and that's unfortunate. I will also say, in, in particularly not in print media, well, print media to a degree, but also in, in electronic media, the, the real people who need to learn religious literature are two classes: editors and bookers. <laughs> okay, I don't, t- I cannot tell you how many times I got calls from you know, oh, Bill O'Reilly's <clears throat> staff. You know, okay, Bill's decided our editorial meeting at ten. We're going to have two people on to discuss the ethic or the morality of invading Iraq, and we've got somebody in the pro chair we need somebody to be in the anti-war chair will you fill that chair now i I originally said yes like back in 2003 when i was first in town i realized i'm just a prop right and i'm going to get destroyed if it's in a right-wing fox news environment i don't do that anymore but the caller who bill o'reilly said go find somebody for chair number two, was a 23-year-old poli-sci major from Hillsdale College who knew nothing about religion and really was just going down a call list of of vulnerable, stupid liberals who might actually say yes, right? And I was a newbie in town, so I I went to the top of the list. The the, the 23-year-old who called me had no idea about the moral issues surrounding the invasion of Iraq. They were just looking for somebody with a pulse. <laughs> uh, but those are the folks, at least in terms of a lot of television analysis of religion reacting to an immediate story, that's, that's who the editors turn to and they say, well you, yeah, you, you go call somebody and book somebody for five o'clock tonight. Editors then, and how many times have I seen this, where religion will pop in a, in a national, international news story and they'll say, Michelle, I'm going to give this to the, the, the person who covers the, the political beat, right? And then you may end up being the tutor to that reporter, saying, well, this is how religion cuts across, but it, so I think editors many times don't understand that a religion reporter may have more sophistication in covering a popping a news story. Now, one of the good scenes is it seems, or trends seems to be that more and more print uh, outlets now are having co, you'll see two two names on the story or three names where I think 10 years ago, perhaps that was less often done at the post and at the times where there would be the 800 pound gorilla, uh, political reporters that get out of my way. I own this story.
1: Yeah. I think it's much more open today. On the line, right? yeah. I think the internet is, I don't know if the, I think the internet's changing that, yeah. you know, cause it's a, it's a much more open marketplace today than it used yeah. to be. Sean, open I'm going to give app. you, give you a warning. We've only got about, Two more minutes. Uh,
5: I also agree that the context is is radically important here, and that's why it's so difficult. You may understand the the dynamics of, of the Muslim community in Murfreesboro, but that doesn't mean you know anything about the dynamics in Baghdad. And the same is true for Christianity, and that's why it is so complicated. I may hire a PhD at the State Department who knows uh, Islam in Pakistan, but they're useless to me in London. And it's because it's just that, that hard to really understand what's going on. Um, will religion ever return to the State Department? I have no idea. It probably will never return in the form it was under me, but I remain hopeful. As I said, there, there are many, many ways you can socialize religious literacy in complex government bureaucracies. You don't have to have a shiny office at the top of the, of the pile Uh, to do that. Uh, And lastly, uh, Steve, uh, I mean your your question about day-to-day lives, the most successful moments I had in my diplomatic career when I I would ask two questions in religious communities, I would say, what's going on in your community? And I would shut up. And religious folk, here I'm essentializing and I realize it, they love to talk about what's going on in their community. It seems to be universal. I see there are very few reticent religious groups. Now, there's some, but but by and large. And then second, the question would be, from the perspective of your community, how do you assess what's going on in your neighborhood? Uh, And so asking the right questions and listening to people and getting them to talk is absolutely fundamental to success, I would say, in diplomacy, but also in most local government work. If you come in and intimidate people, if you make people feel uncomfortable, then you've lost the game from the beginning. But it's more about how can government folk who have some degree of religious literacy know the right questions to ask, and then can you shut up and let them tell their stories? That's the way you begin to build relationships. I grew up in a family. We argued a lot. Uh, My dad used to say we had three sacraments. We had baptism, Eucharist, and argument in our household. Uh, Those are sort of the three sacred acts that, that you did. But we argue through storytelling. I grew up surrounded by amazing storytellers. So I I think argumentation can go on in the form of storytelling. And the last thing I'll say is if progressives are going to get better at this governance thing, we need to tell better stories. When we do that, we win. When the other guys tell the better story, they win. Thank you. I'll stop.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Let's give a round of applause to the panel and if, if I may, just a few few more closing remarks i uh, I just want to I just have to give a, a heads up to say actually religion is has always been and will remain in the State Department, but it the conservative dimension of Protestant Christianity is what's there and growing and stronger so religion was has always been there uh, it just isn't there in the nuanced way that your remarkable work in And I just want to say publicly, you did a remarkable thing to create that office out of scratch, and it made a big impact while it was there. I do have trust that it will come back uh, because you create a wonderful template. So thank you for that incredible work that you did. Um, And so the, the other comment to make and then closing comments is just to say that we have talked about wanting to... Have um, publications or something come out of these symposia? It seems to me one of the, I, this is off the top of my head, but seems to me that part of what uh, something like a symposium like this requires that we think about what stories we need to tell out of this panel and what it means to come together to think in new ways about the stories that re- unite us, but also help. Uh, focus us on these incredibly complex, rich questions. So for those of you who are, the, those of you here as participants, if you can help us think about that, what would be most useful for us to, to do something with this material? There's, these have never been intended to be one-off events. They're just beginnings of networks and ways to then think about building uh, on, this, on these beginnings. We're eager to help you, th- have you think with us about how to do that. And then in in closing, I just want to say thank you to all the panelists. This was a remarkable uh, day and a half um, of conversation. And so grateful for your taking the time to join us. I know all of you are engaged in work that, and this is a busy time of year, just uh, so generous of you to take the time to be with us and to share your wisdom and your stories. I have learned a ton, I know all of us here have, so I want to thank all of you who traveled to be with us, and I hope pleased uh, with, a, with a, a, a sincere plea to, to keep in touch with us. This is, again, a beginning, not, not an end. Um, I want to thank you again, Sean, for, for again, your leadership, but your uh, willingness to help us shape this and to be, to be our keynote to help shape that event and to be our bookend, so thank you for that uh, uh, on, the, on the fly. I want to uh, thank our, our wonderful AV people who are, always do octopus things. It's remarkable in the behind the scenes. Um, I want to thank Bruce McGever, who is the generous donor of this entire series. We would not be able to do any of this without his generous support. I'm sorry he can't be with us. Um, and then finally, uh, well, no, no, sorry, but before final, is uh, to thank Steve again for partnering with us in this. It's been such a great uh, synergy to, to bring these two institutions and our two ideas together. So it's thank you again. He came off sabbatical to do this. That's the other thing I want to say. Thank you especially for that. And David, who left earlier, has been a remarkable uh, leader in, in this initiative as well. And then finally, I started yeah, last night, and I must now end with thanking really, truly, not exa- exaggeration, the two people most Responsible for this entire event in everything from the nuts and bolts to the wonderful, rich intellectual foundations of what we've done through the case studies, Sarah Bin Levy Brightman and Lauren Kirby. So, thank you.